Atmospheric sound effects there. That's the Smiths with a track, Well, I Wonder, from the album Meat is Murder. I'm David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. (laughs) Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know some you don't, and some you should. Always playing the finest in indie pop. This week's special guest is going to be the turn of Joe Bartlett, who has an amazing CV, started uh, promoting indie bands in the m- mid-80s with The Buzz Club, but went on to work for Ultimate Records in PR and also was one half of Joe and Danny. Plus, began that Green Man Festival has a fantastic website that you should subscribe to titled Indie Through the Looking Glass, and it's also involved in two musical bands as I speak. So, all that, plus much, much more in the interview. But I think we should start with some music, and this is going to be your favourite of mine. This is a Love Expression by It's Joe and Danny. Take it away. Attitude, you're true to yourself. 
There you go. That is Joe and Danny, and that's a track titled Love Expression. That came from an album titled Lank Haired Girl to Bearded Boy. And this week's special guest is going to be Joe Bartlett, who is one half of those that band. And also, as I mentioned earlier, has a fantastic CV of exciting things, including two musical projects at the moment, Kodiak Island and also Christine X. So we'll be hearing more about that and much, much more as the show progresses. But before we have the first part of that interview, I think I should do some exciting admin. Yes, if you want to contact me, we'd love your messages. You can via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86show. And also, all these shows have been archived for your enjoyment. So you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, and also Mixcloud. So just check that out. Anyway, we're going to play one more track, then the first part of that interview. I probably already said that. Anyway, this is going to be the Chesterfields and the... um, and a song titled Ask Johnny D. You knew I was going to play that, didn't you? See 
still sounding amazing 20, 30 years later probably. Anyway, that's the Chesterfields on the track titled Ask Johnny D. Now, this is David Esau. This is the C86 show and this is going to be the first part of my interview with Joe Bartlett where I began with that fascinating question of the early years and how it all began for her and this was her answer and I just talked a little bit about Dan Tracy and TV personality more the TV personality should I say and this was her reply Joe take it away he had a label called Dreamworld uh, and other bands on the label were Thousand Violins and the Mighty Lemon Drops I was in two bands uh, one called Go Service and one called Blue Train and we, re- we released 12 inches on his label and then because of that we used to go up to a club he ran in uh, Chalk Farm in London above a pub the pub was called The Enterprise and his club was called um, Room at the Top mm-hmm. and we used to play there really regularly supporting loads of fantastic bands like well like the TV personalities the House Martins just loads and loads of fantastic bands up there and it was through doing those that it gave me the idea to start my own club um, so round where I live, um, I tried a couple of locations first of all, but then settled on an art centre in Aldershot called the West End Centre, which is still going, and uh, ran the Buzz Club from there. So I did it for about, I think it was seven years we ran the Buzz Club. Um, yes. And I was kind of in a band or various bands myself the whole time there, so we sort of su- support our favourite bands while we were doing it kind of thing. Yeah, because I did an interview a couple of, probably months ago now, um, Colin Gregory from the 1000 Violins, who um, talked a lot about Dan Tracy and and the Dan Tracy world. And it did sound quite surreal. I had had very little idea of what an amazing character he was and what what a scene he created at that time. Absolutely, yeah. Because Colin was saying that they they came from Sheffield. They used to go and just sleep on his floor for weeks on an end. But they never saw Dan because he was always the other side of the door. So they used to have to shout through the door and ask him yeah he was an he he was an an enigmatic character it's fair to say yeah yes yeah i mean he would he would use i was living with my parents at home and i would be waiting on a phone call from dan for weeks and i remember sometimes my mum who was quite a colorful character an irish northern irish lady sometimes when dan would phone up she'd shout up it's god on the phone just because (laughs) he had taken so long to kind of call and i'd be mortified oh hi dan sorry about my mum yes absolutely (laughs) so when you would put when you started putting these gigs on the buzz club um did you sort of feel like you were part of the scene you know or did you feel like there was a scene at all yeah, yeah. It was obvious there was a scene. Um, I can't remember at, at what stage. I mean, obviously, I, I was aware of the NME cassette coming out. I can't remember at what stage that kind of early indie scene started to get called C86, whether it was at the time, probably not quite at the time. It was probably a couple of years afterwards. But um, yes, because we were doing, again, the reason the, the reason we picked a lot of those bands for last to play was because we had done gigs with them in London, like the June Brides played a couple of times. And then I was working in a record shop as well. I was working in one of the uh, R-Price records. Uh, and so I would sort of get all the indie records that I liked and stock it in the shop that I was in and, and get a little indie section on the go. So I was aware of Subway Records and 53rd and 3rd, so the shop assistants and the flatmates and the Chesterfields. And so because it was kind of the music I was into and the music my bands were sort of making as well, it just became natural to follow that course and start booking those bands to come to Aldershot. Yes. Because I put eight, uh, the, the indie scene of the 80s down from 83 to 87, which is basically the years of the Smiths. Um, I know it's... Yeah, like, fair it, enough. <laughs> it's not a great... It's not a watertight theory, by the way, but I like to sort of, you know, put it into some sort of category. So, that'll so, do. As theories <laughs> go, that'll do. Yes. And, um, yes, so what I was kind of boggled by, and I suppose this was one thing that I'd sort of come, come across from sort of both remembering it and then sort of talking to people, was that kind of the importance, um, bizarrely, of being unemployed at at the same time though it sounded like you probably had jobs but for a lot of bands they spent you know like two years sort of being unemployed and sort of making a sound before you know often it was the John Peel moment that came where if he played a, a record a single that would give those bands that kind of lift to that next stage which is often the John Peel yeah. session yeah. so did you yeah, sort of also have that kind of feeling because having spoke to quite a few people there wasn't much else to do apart from being unemployed and then think oh we might as well start a band well um i was in a band i ran a club and i also had a job so it's not quite the same for me i've always been somebody that takes on quite a few uh, i enjoy being active and doing the things i love so um i was i was healthily employed on three fronts if you like um it was handy working in the record shop because our prices i'm sure you know had lots of shops in lots of towns and so around where we are there was there was 
lots all the all the local towns had an R price and I got to know all the people that worked in all the various R prices. So when I had a buzz club coming up, I'd post them all flyers and they'd put them on the counter for me. So it was kind of a nice little network to appeal to all the indie kids who were shopping. And then I would get customers coming into whatever shop I was in and it would be obvious who was the one whose musical taste I liked because they'd come up to the counter and ask, you know, have you got a, whoever it might be, even even REM, I remember in those days, coming in to get the Radio for Europe um, EP. So you sort of bonded with these customers that came in and then I'd give them flyers to the Buzz Club. And even if they hadn't heard of the band because we'd been talking about music, they'd come along to it and then sometimes my band would be supporting or whatever. So all three of the things I was doing were very much interlinked um, and each one of them sort of helped the other element of of my life I suppose yes and how long did the buzz club last for I think it was from 85 to 92 I've kind of I've written about it once and I've got a new it's a new issue it's been going a year the blog site I've got at the minute I've got a a site called indie through the looking glass.com and so I'm kind of finding what I've written before every now and again people pop up who used to go to the buzz club and they suddenly announce the most exciting things like oh yeah i used to go between such and such and such and such dates and i think i've got loads of photos and live recordings do you want me to see if i've got them and i'm like well yes please that'd be amazing (laughs) so even up until last year last summer somebody called hutch philip hutchinson got in touch with me and i remember him from from the time obviously and i know, know that he was one of the guys that used to be there holding his sony walkman and recording it um and so he he said, I think I've got some photos and some live recordings. And he looked once and he said, no, I can't find them. I thought they were going to be at my parents' place and they're not there. And then he was like, oh, my God, I think I know where they are. And bless him, he, he went to his parents' garden shed. He, I think he literally had to empty every single thing out of it. And, of course, the very last box <laughs> in the dark corner at the back of the shed, voila, there was all these photos. I think they were still, he had one of those, what they called disc, no, what were those cameras, or they disc cameras or something oh, like that. Yes. Do, do you know what I mean? Those ones that last about a year. But he had, he had all those, and so he very kindly sort of photoshopped some of them to make them just vague, vaguely viewable. He had all the cassettes, which he then digitalized for me. So that mighty, mighty one that I posted at the weekend that you saw, that was one of his batch, and he's got a few. I've got some photos coming up that he took. I've got the Happy Mondays, some primal screen photos, so there were some really exciting ones in his batch. There was a live recording of the Pale Fountains as well, which I posted about a month ago, which is really, I love the Pale Fountains, so that's super exciting for me. Um, and, yeah, just people keep up and flyers that I've lost or you know anything like that I just I really love seeing getting my hands on I've got there's there's another guy who used to come called Dave Driscoll he's got a site called Free Tears and Now he was always there with his Sony Walkman as well and he's got I've got live recordings from the Happy Mondays Blur the Charlatans oh I'm trying to think which live recordings lots of smaller bands unfortunately nobody was there with their recorders the night that um, the Stone Roses played but um I've got a poster from that, so that's okay. I've got that documented a bit. But yeah, we did it. We did it for about seven years. Um, I'm trying to finish it all off in chronological order. I had to go backwards a bit to fit in the stuff that Hutch had given me because I was right on that era when he got in touch. So I sort of went backwards a bit to update it with the live recordings, and I'm right in the C86 era right now. <laughs> Just done Mighty Mighty, and all ones coming up, I think, are the Chesterfields, the Flatmates. Um, I can't remember a few more. Uh, I've done both June Brides, the early Primal Screen. Primal Screen played twice. Um, so, yeah, I'm right in the middle of all that C86 stuff. So it's a question of kind of like looking at notes I scribbled down at the time, checking what I've written previously, scratching my head and closing my eyes and going back through the mists of time to see what I can remember about those days and quickly getting it down before they're gone forever. There you go. That is the first part of my interview with Joe Bartlett, talking about those heady and exciting early years of the Buzz Club. And if you want to go to the website and spend at least most of the next week looking through it in great enthusiasm and a certain amount of nostalgia, um, you can, if you just go to Indie Through the Looking Glass, and you'll find the website there and lots more information. She has been so busy. And as you can tell, very excitable, but that was all good stuff. Anyway, I'm going to play another track and then we'll have more chat. Anyway, this is a band that she mentioned, and um, quite frankly, every radio show should at least play a track by this band at least once in their show. This is going to be The June Brides and Every Conversation. I go to sleep at night I 
June Brides, still sounding incredible. That was a track titled Every Conversation. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. This is going to be the second part of my interview with Joe Bartlett, where I was talking about the Wild Club in Norwich, which used to have a, a weekly indie night um, at the Art Centre. And I asked her whether the Buzz Club was um, weekly as well. I know, that was a great question. And um, I had to prepare that. And this was Joe's reply. Joe, was it weekly or not? Take it away. No, it's monthly. A monthly. It's monthly. Right. Yeah, we were lucky enough to have Saturday nights. A bit easier. Um, so when I started it, I started it with Danny, uh, who uh, is my husband now, and we were in it, Joe and Danny together, and we were always in bands together. So the two of us started it. Um, and initially, as I said, we were both working for Archives Records in, in the local towns, but then we moved up to London. That's when I became a press officer for Ultimate Records, and Danny got a job at Cherry Red Records. So we were then both working at independent labels, but it became a little bit harder to kind of keep travelling down, not just for the nights themselves, but to put the posters up and to kind of do promo for it and all that kind of stuff. We, we, I think we did it for about another three, three years anyway while we were living in London, and we had some of the, some of the really big names come through at that stage. We had Suede, Elastica, um, Corner Shop, I can't remember who else, just... Um, yeah, yes. it just kept going. We we didn't stop it because it had run out of energy. We just stopped it because uh, we personally found it tricky to keep travelling down from London all the time to do it, so we just stopped it while the going was good kind of thing. My God, anybody living in that time and that area must be so grateful for your for your <laughs> kind of uh, enthusiasm. Because people, yes, it's it's kind of amazing when you know we take these things for granted at the time. But then you think, my God, that was so lucky that somebody was kind of bothered to uh, do all that because it is. <laughs> I quite... just, I've always enjoyed, I've always enjoyed sort of uh, finding bands who are small who I think are going to be big and and championing them. Um, the Manic Street Preachers actually, when they played. Um, that's the only one I've got video footage of. That was that was a cool email to get. That was about five years ago. Uh, a guy called Pete Cole got in touch with me and he said, "Oh, I think I've got a video of the Manics when they played. Do, do you want it?" Again, I was like, "Um, uh, yes, please." 
So again, a search carried on where the guy that he knew had filmed it, between the two of them, they couldn't find it anywhere. And then the guy who had actually done the filming went into his mum's attic. And there it was, a big VHS recording of the gig. So uh, they, they, again, put that very kindly onto digital for me and sent it over. It's, it's 15 minutes long and it's absolutely it's absolute perfection because it starts off with them... It was needless to say, it was absolutely rammed that night, and he was to the side of the stage. I think he'd been in the support band, the guy who happened to have a video camera. So he stood and filmed it. Um, the sound is really bad at first, but he's right next to Richie, and it kind of gives you goosebumps because Richie's playing guitar, and at one point he's, he turns around and he just does this angelic smile to the cameraman, and obviously events that followed since when you look at that smile it just it really it brought me out goosebumps and then what the cameraman did because he was aware the sound wasn't very good he went down to the back so for the last bit of the gig he's right down at the back and it's just all of the people jumping up and down and the manics in front of them and a little fight broke out in the crowd so james dean bradfield stops the song and he's he, i think nicky wire starts tapping him on the shoulder and drawing his attention to the fight and then he says you know do something more useful with your time like fight a bank or something like that and it's just Absolute perfection, 15 minutes. You couldn't have asked for a better bit of footage for the Manic Street Preachers. It was when Motown Junk came out, which was their first record on Heavenly. Yes. Well, it is amazing because I suppose that's the thing with the, the Norwich Wild, uh, Wild Night, Wild Club Nights, is that um, very few people, you know, took cameras. So now, you know, when these right, photographs exactly. come out, you know, everyone's got a camera now, haven't they? And, you exactly. know, you sort of, who it's hasn't incredible. got a camera? So, so it's exactly. like, oh, my God, it's, really it's just weird. amazing. The first, the first live recordings I got given by Dave, who who's the other guy that did the recordings, he put them onto CD. I met him in a local pub and he gave me this pile of CDs that he'd made for me. And I got home and I put them on. The funny thing was, just audio... It brought back so much more, I think, than even if it had been visual to go with it, because as soon as I heard the chatter and the kind of, you know, the drum, the bass drum starting and a bit of electric guitar going chang chang when the band's just come on stage, I could practically smell the cigarette smoke that obviously <laughs> was allowed and, yes. and the whole reeking of it in those days. It was really weird. It just dragged me back in time. I think somehow being able to close my eyes and just hear it was more evocative in a funny way than if it had been a video, I think. Yes, this is true, actually. But, uh, I mean, you know, it's just, you know, I, I sort of, yeah, it's great. It's interesting because I, I sort of realised that um, this is another one of my theories, which, again, it's not 100%, but thirty a passing of 30 years seems to make something that could be just chucked in the recycling or landfill suddenly become sort of archival and you put want to yeah, kind of um, preserve yeah. it as a sort of a historical yeah. heritage moment because there yeah. was two books that came out last year about fanzines and a yeah. lot of them were about the 80s fanzines and, and it was like, I'm sure a few years ago no one was at all interested and suddenly two books appeared and it's like, oh, yes, remember fanzines they suddenly don't throw them away and then they go for 20 pounds on ebay so yes 30 years seems to be the other thing but i'm impressed that you managed to go through several musical genres because having interviewed a lot of bands during that 80s period you know it's like well why did it finish because most bands have that five-year narrative you know and and you know two years getting together then a bit of john peel then the first album and then it was the tricky second album if anybody ever does america it seems to completely finish them um almost 100 percent and 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 then you know it's like oh by the way and then and musical tastes and, and the musical landscape changed. And for a lot of those indie bands, you know, the, the dance scene and then grunge kind of finished them. But but you managed to sort of kind of almost get into Britpop. So I was kind of impressed that you, you kept that energy and focus going. With regard to the promotion? Or with yeah, myself, to the Buzz basically. Club, because most things, as you know, sort of don't all... I mean, most things... Are, no, no, definitely we did. I mean, I, I wasn't particularly a fan of Britpop. It was when... When and I think in many ways Britpop was I don't know I, I, I didn't I wasn't a massive fan of Britpop but I think when Blur played uh, the Buzz Club they were actually more trying to be a baggy band because it was more like when She's So High came out it was more like had that dance beat yeah. that was for me a bit like the Stone Roses it was more that kind of wash of but it was definitely a, a scene that then later on became called baggy obviously um, but we didn't we didn't get Oasis. Uh, Dodgy played a couple of times. They're good friends of ours. They played a couple of times. I guess they're definitely Britpop, and I think Suede are these days kind of called Britpop. So I suppose I suppose we did an Elastica. Yeah, hey, we did. <laughs> well, no, I, I'm impressed. I'm impressed because you know because I think a lot of people just that energy kind of. I think four to five years. Well, music years. keeps evolving. You know, I, I'm always we we after the Buzz Club, Danny and I started the Green Man Festival, which was. Uh, which is, um, it was when we started it anyway, we said it was a folk festival uh, and then a genre called Folktronica started to get 
talked about, which basically meant that people were playing acoustic guitars but using drum machines, which musically, as it's Joe and Danny, we were doing anyway, and then bands like the Beta Band and stuff. Music's always evolving. I think I think people who just sort of stay in one kind of closed room just listening to the same sort of music, it's a bit sad, really, because... Yeah, sure, a jingly-jangly guitar from 1987, but mixed with a drum machine in 2003 or something might just sound absolutely phenomenal. So music's, music merging and evolving is, is absolutely vital, I think. Yes, this is true. But I, what I've noticed, though, and I expect when I in that period during the 80s, I, I probably hung out with a slightly older group of people who were a bit more into that 60s and 70s scene, and they hated the 80s. You know, when I used to put the Smiths on and, and all those sort of... any Well, they, they just... Lay, Literally, they reach. They literally got up to. So I suppose you know Van Morrison, the Bob Dylan's, the Neil Youngs, yeah. and and you know yeah. and, and before and, and all the usual before that, the Stones and the Beatles. But I did sort of think, yeah. God, is that going to happen to me? I'm going to get to that age where I'm going to wake up one morning and go, I don't want to hear any new music. The 80s, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. it's, you know, and it, has it happened? Has it ever happened to no, you? No, I'm still really curious. But I did notice with those kind of old hippies that I hung out with, you know, they they didn't walk get into the 80s. I mean, they well, they yeah, you know they might have got I the mean, latest. Suzanne Vega album or the latest Tracy Chapman oh, right, album yeah. of that period. But funnily enough, a lot of those 80s jingly-jangly bands obviously were listening to the Velvet Underground and the Birds and stuff, so yes. there was always a throwback to semi-acoustic guitars and you know, jingly-jangly music from the 60s. I mean, personally, all those bands you said, I, I adore all of those bands that you just said, but I also <laughs> adore the Smiths, I also adore Lloyd Cole, I also adore R.E.M., I also adore plenty of music that's going on right now. Indeed. There you go. I hope you're paying attention because I will test you at the end of the show. Anyway, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show. And as I said earlier, and um, you may or may not have been paying attention, but um, I have archived all these shows and I've nearly got up to, to, well, I'm getting towards 200 interviews with people connected with the 80s indie scene and a bit beyond all before that. But anyway, if you go to um, Spotify, iTunes, uh, Mixcloud and Podbean, they're all there. And if you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter, just go to at C86show. And as I said earlier, um, Joe has got lots of exciting projects, including a brilliant website, which is titled Indie Through the Looking Glass. So do go and try and locate, check that out, Google it. It will be great and you'll love it. Anyway, before I waffle on anymore, I think we should play some more music. This is going to be The Brilliant Corners and the track titled Brian Ricks. It's hard to imagine what it meant to me Holding you tight on the settee Miles and miles of carpet, chocolate and tea A palace of paupers such as me Don't be so worried, we won't get caught They won't be back till 11 o'clock We fumbled around the front of the budget Started to laugh. Well, what's so funny? It's just you remind me of Brian Ricks. When you pull down your trousers, it sends me in fits. It's just you remind me of Brian Ricks. When you pull down your trousers, it sends me in fits. Well, that's cool. Perfect 
pop song there. That is the Brilliant Corners and that's a track titled Brian Ricks. This is going to be the third part of my interview with Joe Bartlett where we moved on to the life at Ultimate Records and her time as a PR person working there and life with bands such as Sensor. Remember Sensor? They were just so living on the edge. Anyway, Joe, was it just rock and roll? Champagne, cocaine? Who knows? Anyway, We'll find out now. Joe, take it away. Um, well, I work for an indie label, so it's probably a bit more pomane, and there was enough optimism, to be fair. But, um, yeah, I mean, I remember, I certainly remember that band, you know, menswear, I assume you've heard of the band menswear. Oh, yes. They, weren't yeah, they the so ones? They, they got, well, they famously got, I think it was about 100 grand or more for four songs or something like that, publishing deals. I mean, that's where I think Britpop got very dangerous because of all that money washing around and all that forgive me for saying it but not particularly talented bands getting lots of money um for that period for me musically we weren't particularly doing anything exciting but it was still frustrating to watch from the sidelines as as other people i figured weren't as talented as myself again (laughs) forgive me getting loads of money that was annoying but working in the industry uh we had plenty of terrific bands on ultimate and that was always super exciting working with them on the inside as it were um, some of the bands when, the, when I started working there weren't the bands that became the most famous bands. There was a band called Submarine, who I adored. They uh, they had they had a link with the Flaming Lips, and I remember I got a quote from um, from Wayne Coyne that they put on the sticker on the front cover of the Submarine album, saying "Submarine make the sun shine brighter" or something like that. So that American kind of where I suppose it ended up with bands like Pavement uh, and all that kind of stuff. Submarine and a few other guitar bands are kind of starting to flirt with that. I, and I think, as you say, grunge probably came came, came along afterwards. Oh, am I getting my years right? Would grunge have come just after that? When Sensor and, and uh, cr- um, Crusties, was that after grunge? No. Well, or about God, the same time? Well, I suppose the first before? Nirvana album was 89, and then suddenly it was all sort of, you know, everything from so Seattle. Never, never mind came out. It all exploded about two years later then. Yes, it would have done. Early actually. 90s. Yeah, yeah, and then by the so time... anyway, the, the whole that whole crusty scene, like you were saying, back to the planet. Sensor, uh, I mean, even Rage Against the Machine. Sensor supported Rage Against the Machine at um, the Brixton Academy. That was a that was a fantastic gig. And then it got all kind of uh, trippy, dancey sort of raves with Krusty's kind of Planet Dog and Mega Dog and all that kind of stuff. That was a massive. It got, it was absolutely massive. The Mega Dog used to go on tour and play huge. Well, I mean, huge by the standards you might expect something across the rave to, to play like 5,000 in Manchester, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So yeah, that was another, that was another change of genre as it suddenly went into that kind of world. Yes, I know the world of didgeridoos. We couldn't get away from Indeed. it. Even, Indeed. In fact, I think there was even a person called Dr. Didge who even had an album. Out. It, uh, that sounds familiar. It was great for me though, because in those days, Sensor got, Sensor actually, their album went into number four in the, went in at number four in the proper album charts. Um, because they were so big, I got to go on press trips to Japan. I got to organize TV appearances. I organized their appearance on the word with uh, Terry Christian, um, loads, there were loads of little tiny sort of TV shows around about those era. Um, Gary Crowley hosted one and I had to go to the Astoria in London and, and Censor were kind of quite famous for never being on time anywhere. So I think we lied to them and sort of told them it was two hours later than it really was or two hours earlier than it really was just to get them <laughs> yes, there on time. And they kind of stayed up all night to get there, that kind of thing. It was all a bit, uh, all a bit of good fun, really. Yes, but then... You know, apart from still playing music, you also then you, did you start the Green Man festivals in in the yes. Of, so what what gave you the inspiration and and also the the kind of enthusiasm that you need for these things? Well, it wasn't so much enthusiasm as desperation, to be honest with you. So Danny and I, by that stage, had got married and we had moved. We'd, we'd signed to RCA. Uh, as it's Joe and Danny, um, after our, we, did, we released an album called Lankhead Girl to Bearded Boy on our own label, and Joe Wiley played tracks on her daytime Radio 1 show three days in a row, which resulted in us getting a record deal. So we moved to the mountains of Wales. We bought a converted farm, um, having lived in London for 10 years, moved to, to Brecon. Um, and right on cue, we got dropped by RCA. So suddenly we were like, oh, we thought we were going to be pop stars and this was going to be our kind of country retreat from all our world tours and stuff. But actually there were no world tours and we we live in Brecon where there aren't many jobs. 
So it was a question of kind of like just going, oh, my God, what are we going to do? We just had a baby and we need to get some money. So um, luckily, Wales is an astonishingly beautiful country with lots of mountains and big empty fields. And we had we had done a photo shoot for It's Joe and Danny with this really lovely couple who owned, as luck would have it, a stately home down the road. And we spoke to them initially about having a festival there. It, it didn't actually happen that we took, we did it on their land, but the idea grew and grew and grew. And we found for the first year of Green Man, which is 2003, we found a, a little castle, which was very handy, very convenient. So um, at that stage, the kind of indie scene, if you will, was was folk, really, because it was all the kind of um, Fence Collective and King Creosote and James Yorkston and, and Dom- Domino Records were starting to get big there. I think they had, I think they were just about to sign Franz Ferdinand, but they would sort of, they had a lot of those folk bands and folktronica yes. bands, Fortet, Fortet as well as on Domino. Um, so, yeah, so we started that in 2003. Um, we had 350 people come to the first one. Um, and luckily, the guy who was doing the press with us, for us was a guy called Ken, who has a company called Hamana. And I phoned him to see if he would do the press for It's Joe and Danny, because we were having been dropped. We were trying to get a, a new record out back on our own label again. And I happened to mention to him that we lived in Brecon and we had this idea to start a festival. And he was like, oh, my God, my wife's from Brecon. That's a brilliant idea. I'd love to help you with that. So he became the press officer. And he was just phenomenal. That first year, we got four stars in The Times, Lots of magazines came down that no longer exist, but we got loads. I think the enemy, enemy, maybe not you one, but we got loads of brilliant reviews and stuff. So we we carried on. We had no money whatsoever. The first first year we lost nine pounds ten p, which is not bad. But we it's didn't actually it. have any money to 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 live to live on. That was you know we didn't make any money, but at least we didn't you know lose our everything we own kind of thing. So um, yeah. So anyway, we carried on and it, it kind of grew and grew and. It was the forerunner, really, on all the festivals. At, at the time, there was the Big Chill, there was Tea in the Park, obviously there was Glastonbury, obviously there was Reading, and I, I honestly think that was it. I'm not kidding, I think that was literally all the festivals that there were in the UK at the time. If I'm wrong, apologies to whoever else existed. But, <clears throat> excuse me, we, um, we sort of started... Ironically, we had started it because we had been dropped by the majors and we thought, right, sod the music industry, we're going to do our own thing. And then, of course, as soon as we started doing that, the whole music industry suddenly became festival orientated because illegal downloads at that stage were kind of killing off the music industry and its recorded music form. So they were all trying to get bands out playing festivals and festivals just absolutely sprung up. You couldn't move. A few years later, you literally couldn't move that. Every village or every town having its own festival um, but luckily enough, we were right at the spearhead with the Green Man, and, and it, we were supported by really good people. Like I say, Domino Records were brilliant to us in those early years. Um, Bonnie Prince Billy, when he came over in 2005, we had a UK festival exclusive with him. Um, Joanna Newsom was on uh, Domino as well. So all those Americans were coming over, and they were playing the Green Man. So it grew every year, and we, we would add... like The first the first one, like I said, was just one, one day and one night, and then the next one we did... Um, I think we did two days, and then we did two days and a night, and then we did three whole days, and it just kept growing and growing and growing. We kept having to find new locations, uh, and we we got some people to help us because the infrastructure got too hard to organise just for the two of us. Um, and then we moved on in 2011 after the 2011 festival, where 15,000 people count for four days and four nights, and we had the Fleet Foxes. I mean, Robert Plant phoned up at home, actually, and asked if he could play in 2007. That was kind of fun. <laughs> That's amazing, so, yes. Yeah. yeah we said, a... no, Robert, of course you can't. Yeah, no, we didn't. We said, yes, please, that'd be amazing. <laughs> Danny actually answered the phone. I was quite jealous because I never got to speak to Robert Plant. He came in looking all flushed. We knew Robert was going to call because a mutual friend said, is that OK if I give him your number? He wants to play Green Man. And we were like, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so he phoned up and he was chatting to Danny and going, yeah, I've just, I've got to go to Sweden to get a Lifetime Achievement Award from their president or prime minister or whatever. Um, so I just sort of called him and said, OK, if I play the festival this year. <laughs> so Danny was like, oh, yeah, I think that's OK. So his agent, bless him, held my hand and sort of talked to me and walked me through getting the proper deal together so that Robert Plant could headline 2007, which took us to a whole new level, as you can imagine. Yes. Uh, yeah. That was yeah, amazing. So, I mean, loads of such amazing bands we've got on there. It's just, it was, it was, it was great fun. I mean, yeah. I've always enjoyed really putting on a small band and then watching them get really big. That's kind of always my buzz, to be honest with you, finding small bands and then watching them and going, hi, oh, I knew they had something about them as they, as they get really big. And that is the third part of my interview with Joe Bartlett talking about the Green Man Festival. 
Impressive stuff and still going today. Anyway, before we have any more chat and um, I think we should play a little bit more music. This is going to be The Mighty Lemon Drops. And yes, it's going to be your favourite and mine. This is Like an Angel. is the mighty lemon drops there can be no doubt about that and the track titled like an angel this is going to be the fourth part of my interview with joe bartlett where i had been talking about the timing of the green man festival and um yes in many ways it was very fortunate and this was joe's reply joe was it a fortunate well it was moment? lucky because we because because we had done the buzz club you know we knew what we were doing when it came to booking bands and i had been a press officer so in the I knew how to choose a press officer, if you know what I mean. I knew that Ken and I were speaking the same language and the skills that Danny had had when he was at Cherry Red and obviously being in a band. And while we were in signed to RCA, we played we played Glastonbury and we played uh, Reading and we played here in the park and we played abroad and all that kind of stuff. So we, we knew how important it was to make sure that we had a, a really great PA and that the bands were all treated properly. And that, that we did, we wanted it to feel proper from the very first 
day. So, you know, even in year one in 2003, when we only had 350 people there, we made wristbands, we made different coloured wristbands for the artists, and we sent the artists a proper promo pack before they played, and we did it all very, very properly. Um, and we, we, I like to think we treated everyone with respect. If I, I used to, my, one of my jobs was answering the emails, so I personally... I mean, I didn't even think we realised you could put an FAQ thing on the website. I would just personally answer every single question for for the first few. I mean, sometimes I'd be just hours in there just answering people's questions about could they bring a dog or could they do this or could they do that. But then people would come up to me at the festival and and say, oh, you replied personally to me, thank you so much kind of thing. And I'm pretty emotional and I was usually pretty knackered at the festival, so invariably that mean me embarrassing everyone by weeping slightly as I thank them for thanking me kind of thing. But... Um, I think it's important to, to do anything you do to do it really properly. And I think when we set up The Green Man, we did do it properly, which is why it's still going now. And that's Joe Parlett. That's the fourth part. There's just one more little bit to go, and that will definitely be the end of it. But um, this is a bit that I've been sort of talking for a long time. So I edited myself out and then sort of asked her if there had been any tricky years dealing with The Green Man. And this was Joe's reply. 2005. 2005 was the worst one for us in that respect. That was the last year we did everything on our own. It was year three, and it had really exploded. I mean, we sold out in advance before. We, I hadn't even printed the flyers yet, and we'd sold out, and that was 2,500, which has gone up and gone up and gone up in capacity. So basically, it was like me and Danny looking after 2,500 two people for three days and three nights, making sure they've all got fed. They can go to the loo, they can have a shower, they can stay warm, they can stay dry, and, of course, they're all entertained all the time. We did it, but it was... Uh, there's somebody made a film of the 2005 festival and they, they did an interview with Danny and I on the Thursday night when it was all kind of... The, set, the um, site was all just finished being built and what have you. And we were like, yeah, it's going to be great, really looking forward to it. And then they did an interview with us again on, on the Monday morning. And I think we both lost half our body weight just in stress. We just looked like hollow-cheeked, just so... We, it was just such an unbelievably stressful weekend. The PA stopped working during Bonnie Prince Billy's set. He was a headline act. Two kids got went missing. I'm delighted to say they were found not long afterwards. But when you're living with the thought that you might have two kids who've gone properly missing on your site that you've designed, you got a couple of stressful hours there. The whole thing was... Everyone else had the best time of their lives, and we part of us did but the vast majority of our beings were stressed beyond belief i had such insomnia around 2005 before and after everyone thought i'd sleep the sleep of the just but i think i did my brain so much damage in in the stress that it went through over that particular weekend it, it took a long time to even just kind of calm down again after it yeah. it was worth it but it was uh fairly full on but the amazing <laughs> thing is we're still here but you're still making music which is which is obviously hmm. you're, you're you know you could because actually interesting enough a lot of the bands that you put on and i've seen the posters having interviewed them they do their five years and then they think right i'm going to give this a miss and get a job and then possibly come back 30 years later when it's slightly you know forgot or buried some of those kind of thought memories but you you've sort of managed to keep going which is quite incredible well, I've, got, I've got a job as well but um i still do make music i don't think i'll ever be able to stop making music i've got two two projects on the go at the minute i'm in a band called kodiak island we're signed to a label called Musical Bear, uh, and we, we're just sort of releasing a, a string of EPs at the minute. We've done the Orange EP, the Lemon EP, and we're in the process of putting the Lime EP together. Um, we've had a few BBC Six plays and stuff like that. Uh, we play live rarely, but we absolutely love it to bits. There's a local bar we go and play in, and it's I just absolutely adore it. The music we make, I think, is fantastic, but you know, we're of an age and in a world whereby, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to get to be number one in the Spotify charts or anything like that. But um, I absolutely love it. I think it's among the best music I've ever made. And then I've got a solo project called Christine X, which is kind of uh, an audio representation of the blog I write, where I kind of get old cassettes or old bits of music I've made previously or interviews I've done or something like that and I cut them up and put it into Logic and then put beats and synthesizers and guitars and stuff along with them and that's going really well I just, oh yeah and I'm going to do a track for every letter of the alphabet so I've just released C for Camden uh, and it got paid on BBC Six and then Andy Weatherall played it on his show last week which I was chuffed a bits about Fantastic and what would you yeah. and what would you say to your 18 uh, year old self kind of starting out in that interesting world of rock and roll and music Oh, I'll say, it'll be all right, girl, keep going. 
it's fun. And that's the last part of my interview with Jo Bartlett. Um, if you want to find out any more information about what she's up to, if you go to her website, which is titled um, Indie Through the Looking Glass dot com, there is no commas or dots or dashes in that first part, indie through the looking glass.com. Um, you'll find an amazing website with lots of information and much more. And I do believe she's also on um, Instagram and Twitter. But then who isn't? Anyway, thank you ever so much for listening and a big thank you to Joe for giving me that time. This has been David Eastall, the C86 Show. I'll leave you with some more bits and pieces from her back catalogue, including her latest musical adventure, which is Christine X, and this is demoed, plus a bonus track. Yes, it's going to be Sensor. Check it out. Anyway, have a great week.
Hey! 